0: Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. We have an incredible episode for you today. Seth and Nerva interviewed Clay Jones, the author of the book, Why Does God Allow Evil? Compelling answers for life's toughest questions, especially during the season. It is incredibly timely. And Clay Jones talks about the problem of suffering and evil and all that. Before we get to the interview, we want to remind you about impact360.org. Again, as we're home a little more recently, we encourage you to check out those Impact 360 online courses for apologetics and Christian worldview training, especially for those in high school and college. They have their online courses about truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. And you can watch it online. They have downloadable PDFs for you to participate in the study. Check it out. Impact360.org and use the promo code Freemind to get twenty-five dollars off those online courses. And now here is Seth Nerva interviewing Clay Jones.
1: All right. Well, we're so glad to have Dr. Clay Jones on the Free Mind podcast today. I actually had uh, Dr. Jones, he probably doesn't remember, it was a while back uh, for a couple classes at Biola. And uh, thankfully, uh, he's a good teacher because he gave me all A's. And so uh, that's the measure of a good teacher. No, but I I have benefited from his work very much over the years. And I don't know when you wrote the book on um, Why God Allows Evil. How, How long ago was that? Uh, it was 2017. 2017, okay. And I know uh, J.P. Moreland gave it the endorsement of one of the best books, or if not the best book on the topic. So hopefully uh, our listeners, if you're out there, you, you'll want to check this book out. We hope to whet your appetite today. We're so glad, so glad to have you on. And, um, you know, just thought we would open up today, just ask you, this is something I actually didn't know before, but how did you become a Christian yourself? What's your background with the faith?
2: Well, I I became a—growing up, my father was, uh, well, basically an atheist, and maybe a pagan. He probably thought there was a God in some way, and my mother was an astrologer. uh, And uh, together, we attended the United Methodist Church. And uh, when I was 11 or 12, uh, my dad became a Christian and uh, gave up his uh, hard-drinking, womanizing— uh, serious gambling and everything became really changed person and when he became a Christian um, my whole family most of us followed suit uh, and became Christians too because we were I mean the the difference was just dramatic uh and so, and I think I became very interested in apologetics and truth claims because my mother, my dad thought my mother was nuts because my mm. mother was into all things occult. Uh, and my dad was in, especially astrology. And I don't mean she read our horoscope in the paper. I mean, she had charts and graphs and, you know, was tell us that our moon was in the seventh house and Jupiter's aligned with Mars. <laughs> <laughs> and Things like that. And and my dad thought that religion was largely nonsense. He was an educator, oh. uh, superintendent of a couple of school districts. <clears throat> and so, it was just a very interesting climate to grow up in. And so, when I think when I became a Christian, it made me very interested in truth claims. Mm. I was interested in apologetics by the time I was 15, for sure. Now,
1: that's, that's, that's really interesting. By the way, did your mom become a Christian? You said your dad became a Christian. Was that dramatic for him? Was, and, and
2: did she follow suit? She did. A few months later, yeah, she became a Christian too and got rid of all her occult stuff.
1: Wow. And so you get into, how did you get into the study then? You said you got into apologetics in general. How did it focus into the problem of evil? In
2: 1981 or two, I don't remember which it was for sure, but I began to understand the glory that awaited us in heaven and forever and as I began to grasp that, nothing, I mean, uh, that's all I wanted to teach on. I was a young pastor at that time in a church big church and i that's all i wanted to teach on as i was you know i mean every opportunity i got you know obviously i taught on other things too you can't just teach about the glory that the lord has in store for the christian but that was the biggest thing but as as i kept focusing on the glory that awaits us in heaven forever uh pretty soon i began to go after well two or three years after that i began to go okay now i understand where we're going Mm -hmm. where did we come from Uh, And so I began to uh, study the depth of human sinfulness and and what the non-Christian is about. And when I put those two together, when I put together the depth of human sinfulness with the glory that God has for us forever, uh, for me, anyway, the problem of evil just went away. Uh, I'm not saying there weren't some issues to answer. There were uh like what is the destiny of the unevangelized and things like that but the basic overall problem just seems small to me i just thought i don't i don't even like to use the phrase problem of evil i don't mm. uh because i don't it's a problem Uh, and i realize a lot of people you've heard me teach on it at some length but i realize a lot of people would think that's crazy town but i i I, all i can say is is and i think a lot of the i think a lot of our graduates the people who have gone through the program with me think that there's you know i mean they're they're understanding the issues here that that we know why we know why god allows evil i just so anyway that's what happened somebody said why don't you write a book that was like 25 26 years ago and i thought I'd like to do that, as a matter of fact. And so I didn't know that that book, Why Does God Allow Evil, would take me 23 years to get out. Mm. I thought I'd have it out in two years, uh, Mm. but it took 23 years. I was probably turned down at least 20 times uh, by publishers. Wow. Until finally, I think Harvest House, who did publish the book, turned me down at least twice before they finally published it. Wow. So. So that's anyway, that's what happened with that.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm tempted to ask what you had to change for them to publish it, if anything. Oh, no,
2: I didn't change anything. No. Uh, huh. Oh, no. They, they changed. <laughs> Since you asked, you, you know, the real issue is is they, I think, they came out and saw, came out to an event that, mm. Biola, a Biola on the Road event. And they'll come out and see hundreds of people sitting there and me speaking on, on, the, on why God allows evil. And uh, I think they went, wow, wait a minute. This guy has a platform. And the truth of the matter is, and I just had a conversation with somebody about this two days ago. And a lot of people struggle with this. They go, I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a platform you're not nobody's going to publish your work no mm. one is i don't care people go yeah but mine's the greatest book in the history of the world they don't care wow uh, unless you have a platform they they just simply do not care they because now with amazon amazon sells all the books in the world and, yeah. and i mean some are sold by christian discount book but uh or christianbook.com but amazon sells the books and that drastically changed uh the entire industry and so now uh, if somebody doesn't have a platform they're not going to get their book published and you could probably want to edit all this out but no no no. i think that's good that's good and that's just advice if somebody if somebody wants to publish you got to have a platform like you are building here and i would just say uh seth uh and, and nerva i would just say if you do want to do that kind of thing man twitter facebook Uh, because if you don't have a platform, they're not going to publish your work. They're just simply not going to do it.
1: And the fact that it took 20 something years, I think in our microwave generation, that's, I mean, just that by itself is a testimony that, you know, just what sometimes it requires to do something really well and to do a good work, you know, it's, it doesn't often come as fast as we think or
2: like. Yeah, that was a godsend. I was frustrated, as you can imagine, being turned down again and again and again. I, I just thank God that Mm. he didn't let me publish it earlier. I'm so thankful. Because, you know, I taught master students now for many years, uh, and then some of them have asked some very intelligent, uh, most of them ask intelligent questions. I won't <laughs> say that's the case with all of them. You know, they ask intelligent questions, and I've had to go back and go, okay, how's the best answer to this? So I'm really thankful for the opportunity to just really go through all of that and have that feedback for years and years and years. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thankful it wasn't published earlier. It wouldn't be half as good. I, so I, I'm thankful. Uh, but you know, my book, Immortal, that just came out last week, you know, how the fear of death drives us and what we can do about it, mm. now, I already – now it had a platform. And see, that book didn't take that much, you know, I mean, obviously when you're dealing with why God allows evil, there's a lot of questions to answer. Yeah. Uh, and, and more than there were in the book, you know, uh, Immortal.
1: Wow. I didn't know that came out last week, so that's good.
2: Uh, Yeah, I got that out in two two years uh, instead of 23.
1: (laughs) It does get faster. Yeah, you know, every time something like this happens, coronavirus, a hurricane comes through, people, you know, it kind of raises the question of, you know, the unfortunate phrase, you call it the problem of evil. Um, And maybe we'll circle back to the the particular instance of this coronavirus at the end. But I I think it really should drive us to ask the, the more basic and fundamental questions about why evil exists, why God allows it. Can you maybe give us just a quick, um, for people who have never really heard that term, the problem of evil, what what have people meant by that historically, and and what is the problem, and then how maybe we can begin to talk about the definition of evil and what that means?
2: I think it was one of the first and earliest formulations was by a guy named Epicurus who lived in the 300s B.C. I'm not going to give his, his, the word, exact wording, but it basically is this. If God is all good, he desires to prevent evil. But if, and if God is all powerful, he'd be able to do what he desires. Evil exists. Uh, therefore, God's either not all good or not all powerful or, uh, you know, I mean, uh, he doesn't exist at all. Uh, and that's the, f- the the logical problem of evil. Most, by the way, most atheists have given up the logical problem of evil. They no longer employ it. Mm. Uh, and, and for a lot of them write like uh, William Rowe have come right out and said this is not really a problem for theistic belief, and that is the logical problem of evil is not really a problem for theistic belief. But that doesn't mean they're, they've given up on use, employing evil. They use now what they call the evidential problem. Oh, I should say one more thing. The reason that they don't employ the logical problem of evil anymore is largely due to the work of Alvin Plantinga, uh, who showed – who said – you know, gave an answer to that. And he said, here's a possible solution. He said, this isn't even necessarily the solution. He says, but here's a possible solution. Uh, And it along the lines of, you know, he gave a defense along the lines of free will and atheists looked at his, you know, solution went, well, okay, that is possible. And so if that's possible, the logical problem no longer uh, can be used against uh, Christians. Like I said, I don't know any atheists today That are trying any academic atheists, you'll find, you know, (laughs) you'll find the the village atheist will still use it, but the academic atheists don't use it. But they do use evil, but as evidential, say, well, okay, fine, we'll put the logical problem of evil aside. We'll not try to show there's an internal contradiction. Yeah, but still, does it make sense that there's so much evil in the world? Mm. And that's where they go with that.
1: And so that hits us as as Christians as well, especially. you know, because I, I, I don't know. I get the sense that many, just in our average pew sitting Christians, especially young folks, we haven't thought any more deeply about the prob- the problem of evil or why God would allow evil than the non Christians, and so we often will feel we'll ask the same questions, man. How could God allow? these good people, quote unquote, to, to go through this stuff. And, we, and if, if nothing else, just to kind of save our faith, we just bracket it out and say, well, I don't want to think about that. And so, you know, how do we begin to help um, believers, Christian believers think about why would God, if he is like the Bible describes him, he is good and he could stop it. Why does he allow such great evils to happen? And maybe before we jump into that, what is evil?
2: Well, evil I, I actually wrote a for the for the Encyclopedia of Christian Civilization, I actually wrote an article on evil, uh, what is evil. Uh, and evil as light and as I say, and this is not new, this is not you know, I wasn't the first to say this, but as as light or as darkness is the absence of light, so evil is the absence of good. Uh namely If good isn't there, then evil starts occurring, and this goes back to Augustine with his belief in privation that you're missing uh, the goodness of God. Evil, in short, whatever God says it is, but people then go, well, is evil 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 whether God says it is or not, or is uh, is it, Mm -hmm. you know, because then they get into what's called the urethro dilemma. And the answer is, evil is whatever God says it is. However, he doesn't do so arbitrarily. Yeah. He decides, he knows what's good or evil by the fact that he's omniscient and the fact that he himself is love. And so, yes, whatever he says is good is good or is evil is evil. But on the other hand, it, but that isn't arbitrary. Uh, so that's the definition of evil.
1: Yeah, and then you sometimes I've heard you uh, further k- kind of give rough categories of evil the way it, we experience it.
2: Well, I should start off with there's moral evil. And of course, moral evil is such things as drunk driving, murder, rape, torture, you know, child molesting and so on. Those are those are moral evils. And then there's natural evils and natural evils are such things as, you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, you know, the flu, (laughs) COVID-19. Uh, and so on. Those are natural evils. I, I tie all natural evil one way or another into moral evil because mm. uh, all, all natural evil is one way or another the result of moral evil, if nothing else. Because when Adam and Eve sin, God looked at planet Earth and he said, I curse you. And what pestilence, what disease, what cancer cannot have arisen from an Earth that God looks at and says, I curse you. And so that's the origin of most natural evil, and that's not the origin of all of it. Somebody, well, for instance, in this virus, uh, some of the natural evil that's occurred is because apparently the authorities in China uh, didn't tell everybody what was going on uh, for several weeks uh, and misled everybody, and then, well, that this, so there you have. Not, uh, moral evil leading to natural evil. So those are yes, those are the two types of evil.
1: And so we face that. And then okay, so those are two types of evil. Kind of evil as a privation of good is 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 a definition. Now, when you get into helping us, you know, understand then why doesn't God just man? Why why would He put us in the position where we could even experience this in the first place? Are there are there some kind of systematic ways we can think through this, help us understand why he would allow that.
2: I think the short answer is, and this is the answer of Plantinga, you know, when I teach my book, Why Does God Allow Evil, is a theodicy. It's not It's not a defense uh, where you're just trying to come up with, well, here's a possible solution. What Plantinga did is he gave a possible solution. In my book, I'm giving what I think is what the Bible tells us. And anyway, the bottom line on all this is, is God gave you, created humans with free will, that free will is valuable. And you cannot give beings free will and not allow them to use that free will wrongly. That's as logical as it gets. You can't tell your daughter that she can go out on a date with a punk down the street and then chain her to a heavy kitchen appliance. That's not, you know, I mean, you haven't given her free will. And so for the Lord to give beings free will or creatures a free will, he has to allow them to use it wrongly. And, and I think that, and the fact that we are using it wrongly, that we humans do often use it wrongly, is an education to us. In fact, uh, you know, the scripture says, you know, it talks about when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and, when, and I think that when they did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they plunged us, their descendants into a lifelong education of good and evil. So, so, and here we are. And, but see, this is eternally valuable knowledge. It's eternally valuable knowledge to us that we are learning that God is good and that sin and rebellion against God results in all this sin and, and suffering, death. Uh, all the rapes and tortures, this is all the result of uh, us being plunged into the knowledge of good and evil. And I think that's eternally valuable knowledge, because I think that, as you know, I argue that we'll be in heaven with free will, Mm. and yet not sin.
1: Yeah, we'll come back. I want to come back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. And so, that's the nutshell. We're kind of going to pull that apart a little bit. You know, one of the challenges. I think outside and even inside the church that often comes up is um, why, why should we bear the responsibility of this couple that lived so many years ago? Why, why should that affect us? You know, I, I didn't do it.
2: (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, yeah, that's a standard question. It's really the first, first chapter of my book is, you know, why, you know, why are we suffering for the sin of Adam and Eve? And I think one of the things is, is that because Adam and Eve are not just some couple thousands or however many years ago happened to rebel against God. They are our parents. Uh, They are our first parents. And unfortunately, like it or not, but the sins that your parents commit can hurt you. That's the way it happens with everyone. I mean, you know, I mean, a a father may gamble away the family's money. You know, I mean, adultery, uh, all the—I mean, you just—you can— Families can hurt their children, and our first parents hurt us, and then they then uh, after they sinned, God kicked them out of the garden, removing them from the rejuvenating power of the tree of life, and this caused them then to, uh, uh, you know, the only kids that they could have were kids like themselves, and that was kids that were out of relationship with God and who didn't love God, <clears throat> and in fact were in love with themselves, if anything. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And uh, one more thing about this, I, I could say a lot, but I'll just one more. The major point is, and we inherited their nature. We inherited the nature of Adam and Eve. And so uh, that, that's the problem that the, we're in today is we inherited their sinful nature. You know, God could have destroyed them and started over, but I don't think that would have done any good because I think that as our, also as our representatives, I think that anybody in their situation would sooner or later rebel against God. And uh, so anyway, it wouldn't have done any good to destroy them and start over. In fact, in a sense, in a sense, he did start over with Noah, wipes the whole world out. And then and what's the first thing that happens? (laughs) I'm not going to get into the details, but the first thing that happens is everybody's dead because of sin. And one of Noah's sons, I think, by the way, I'm going to say this anyway, had sex with his mother. Uh, Noah's with with Noah's wife, uh, and I think that's why the Lord said cursed is Cain because Cain was the offspring of that. Now that's somewhat speculative, but that is a that is a standard theological view of why you know they're suffering for Adam's sin. So anyway, uh, and then of course we have in in First Corinthians, Jesus is called the last Adam. So Adam, we had the first Adam, but then we had the last Adam. The last Adam was someone who didn't sin. Uh, living in this corrupt world, willing to take on the sins of the world uh, and be tortured to death for it, that's the last Adam. And so, mm. so that's, uh, anyway, so the Lord's fair here. Yeah. Uh, he sent in another Adam and and did actually, in a sense, start over with the last Adam.
1: Well, and, and it's interesting, I've heard you say, you know, the, any seed, I think this is how you said it, any seed outside of Christ is poison in, in the fact that we're the seed of Adam and Eve. We are, in essence, Adam and Eve's running around. Right. On the earth. Um, All right. So one of the, I think the kind of second tier of, of what you go through to help people understand why God would allow evil was really helpful for me. And I think one time I was wrestling really tough with hell and the existence of hell, and the nature of hell. And I'll I, I just never forget as so I was praying about it in the car. I was like, God, I just don't understand. And this thought dropped in my head. You could make the case that maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Maybe maybe it was just good theology from back in the day popping <laughs> in. But something came in my head and said, you know, the, your problem is you think you're good. Yeah. I was like, huh. And I, so I began to, you know, just kind of chase that through. a little bit, and I think that I had... Drunk the Kool Aid of our culture that we we basically the Dr. feel like you know at, at bottom we're all good we just got to get back to our true selves and you know therapeutic moral de- deism is sometimes called like God's here to make us happy right. and that stuff splashes on you even when you know better theologically right, right, you might right. get it right on a test but you still operate off those foundations and I think one of the things that was been really helpful with your work is you really almost empirically say. No, it's pretty clear that human beings aren't what we think they are in modern America. (laughs) So maybe, maybe give us a help us understand that for people who do think, man, we were basically good.
2: Well, one of the things that's amazing to me, and you know, I spent a lot of time on it, I spent a lot of time in my book uh, on it, and I spent a lot of time in the class on it is genocide. And, and I really, it's funny because when I first started studying genocide, probably 25 years ago or so, 23 or 20, well, 23 years ago, when I first started studying genocide, I only was going to read a little bit and try to f- because I didn't want anybody to disqualify me as going, well, Clay, you've gotten out of the problem of evil without really looking seriously at how evil, uh, at the kinds of evil that we need to get, you know, got out of. I mean, this genocide is terrible. And so I started reading on some books on genocide, and it didn't take very long for me to realize that genocide is precisely what ordinary humans do. And when that realization hit me, Uh, it was life-changing. It was no less, it was transformative. It was no less than transformative. I knew I was different. I didn't know exactly how I was different, but I knew I was different. Now in the book, I give 12 ways that I was changed by realizing that humans do genocide. And the interesting thing is, uh, as someone now who has read a lot of genocide and mass murder, and I never dreamed that I would do that if you'd said to me, excuse me, if you said to me years ago, uh, are you going to study genocide and mass murder? I would have said, no way. I would never. Uh, why would I do that? Uh, but, but there comes as a, there's a historian named George Crenn and a psychologist named Leon Rappaport put it. Uh, they wrote a book on the Holocaust. They said, if one keeps it, the Holocaust long enough, sooner or later, the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself. One knows finally that one could either do it or be done to. If it could happen on such a massive scale elsewhere, it can happen anywhere. And that is the realization. In fact, uh, uh, I think it was CATS, K T uh Z uh that said you know the the the, the grim re- the grim revelation of the holocaust was not that people could do that the revelation of the grim revelation of the holocaust is that we could do it mm. and so every genocide researcher and that i've read and i've read many many genocide researchers and every genocide victim that i've read and i've read many of them Everyone, to a person, I've been saying this for many years now, I've said this in my book, to a person says that it's the average ordinary members of a population that commits genocide. If you come to that conclusion that humans do genocide extremely easily, if you come to that conclusion, you can't come to the conclusion that humans are basically good. Because humans kill each other very, very, very easily. People talk now about the oppressor and the oppressed. I've got news for you. Everyone's an oppressor. Everyone is an oppressor. Give them a chance. Everyone. So let's get out. You know. I mean. I, I think that some of these things we need to just get straightened out here. There are no people who aren't oppressors. None. Mm. Because but see, this is the result of Adam and Eve and their sin, and we've all inherited their natures, and we're all sinful people. Uh, no one's good. No, everyone. The Scripture says in in Romans three, there is no one who does good. No, not one. No one does good. Uh, you know, it says, and then it goes on just a verse or two later, and says their feet are swift to shed blood. They are swift to sh- shed blood. The trouble is, is we have we look at people that commit genocide. We Americans, and we go, oh well, I wouldn't do that. Well, listen, I mean, we are aborting right now. It's gone down a little bit, about eight hundred and fifty thousand babies a year. Uh, we're, you're, we're suctioning, scraping, and scalding to death, 850,000 babies every year. Well, uh, who keeps that legal? It's your neighbors, right? It's your friends. It's your coworkers. It might even be some of you listening who votes to keep that legal. See, that's the same thing with genocide. See, and, I, but, and I had a woman come up to me when I was first started teaching this. She's a friend, good friend of mine. And she says, you know— She says, don't the other examples when I would talk about what happened in Germany or the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or or what went on in China or the Soviet Union and on, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And the mass murders that occurred there, uh, she says, those make your point. But don't talk about abortion because abortion weakens your point because people, a lot of people don't think abortion is wrong. And I said, well, that's my point. Yeah. Our murder, our killings. Okay. Uh, But see, people go, well, but I'm not committing adultery and I'm not, you know, murdering people. So I'm a good person. No, you're not. Uh, Because if you're, Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're an adulterer. And John says in 1 John, he says, "Uh, he who hates his brother is a murderer. So the question is, if you're lusting, if you're fantasizing about having sex with people you're not married to, And you're hating people's guts. Why aren't you actually having sex with them, assuming you have the opportunity? And why aren't you actually killing them? Well, it's self-interest, right? In other words, uh, you know, I don't want her to get pregnant and, you know, uh, you know, or she's saying I don't want to get pregnant or I don't want to bring home a new disease and have my spouse say, well, that's new, honey. Where'd you get that? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lose my family. But notice all those calculations are based on self-interest. Why don't you, if you hate somebody's guts, why don't you kill them? It's not because you care for them because we've already established that you hate their guts. Well, why don't you kill them? Well, it's because you, uh are afraid of the consequences. And by the way, if you have somebody fantasizing about having sex with someone they're not married to, and maybe a couple that work together, I've seen this when I was employed secularly, this one, this guy and this gal who were both married to people outside the company pretty soon, you could tell are flirting. And mm-hmm. I have no doubt, abs- none, that they were actually doing the deal. Well, when do you actually do it? Well, when you have a workaround for all the consequences and you think, ah, you know, we'll use a condom, our spouses happen to be away for the weekend. Both of them, uh, we'll, we, 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 in other words, we won't get caught uh, I won't get pregnant. I won't get a disease. See, that's when you do it. Same thing with murder. As soon as you you think, I can get away with this, I and you really deeply believe that, mm-hmm. that's when you do it. So we have a society then full of adulterous murderers here in the United States. We have a society full of adulterous murderers uh, who are think they're good people. Because they're not actually acting out their adultery and their murder, but in their hearts they're they're hating and and having sex with people they're not married to. That's what's going on in their hearts. But they go, but but I'm not doing those things, so I'm a good person. No, you're an adulterous murderer. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that's what Je- see Jesus is trying to make sin about the heart. He's trying to make us understand that sin is an issue of the heart. That it's not it's not just your outward actions. And so anyway, uh, so. But once you really begin to understand these things, the, back to what you were saying then, that people are not good. Uh, and that changes the way you view hell. Because if, if you think that people are good, that they're basically good folks, so you go, so good people are going to be in hell? That's really hard to, you know, that's, that'd be hard for me to swallow. In fact, I couldn't swallow it. I'd just be going, this how no. But when you realize there are no good people, there are none. Uh, The only people that are good are those who've been born again and who've been regenerated and who are now becoming obedient from the heart and even us People like that in that situation, boy, it's easy for us to sin, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Even in that situation, uh, it's easy for us to sin. But at least we have a fighting chance because now we're changed from the inside. This to me was transformative, and this is one of the two major things that that make my that set my book. Why does God allow evil apart from others? I don't know of any books that really deal. You know, let's really get into the sinfulness of humankind here and and explain it.
1: Wow, I think that is that is powerful, and one of the things. Uh, I like that you say, as you, you talk about, this is the one point of agreement between John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. Yes, you-
2: <laughs> yes that's right. Well, you know, it's, sometimes when you talk about human depravity, as you're alluding to, you know, you'll have people go, oh, well, that sounds like Calvin, because I know Calvin was into this depravity thing and he thought humans were really, really bad. But, but I'm more of an Arminian well, I got news for you, Arminians. Arminius agreed with Calvin on that point. Uh, uh, Arminius agreed with Calvin that without the work of the Holy Spirit, no one ever does anything good, ever. Uh, So if anything, you know, I like to kid around, if anything, uh, you could call Arminius a one-point Calvinist, uh, because on that point, they agreed. And you know what, If, if if you agree on that point, uh, wow, you know, I mean, because you have this huge theological spectrum, right? But on this one point, they agree. I, th- I think it's, it's significant. So, yes, it,
1: that is significant. people are not good.
2: And by the way, back, just one more comment about the genocide. When you read genocide researchers, one like uh, George Crane and Leon Rappaport, they said, where can one find an affirmative meaning in life if human beings can do such things? Mm. Uh, as a non-Christian, I don't know. Irish Chang wrote if you want to read if, if those of you that are listening want to read a chilling book read The Rape of Nanking by Irish Chang where she talks about the Japanese coming in and invading Nanking China and uh, 300,000 people were uh, raped, tortured or murdered in Nanking China by the Japanese and she Iris Chang gives a chilling, graphic, horrifying account. In fact, I think I was reading Irish Chang's book when all of a sudden I went, "Uh-oh, this is what humans do." Humans are not good. Mm. But Iris Chang then went off later and killed herself uh, some years. She started writing a book on the Beitan, the Beitan Death March, mm. uh, which is where the J- Japanese were marching Americans through, you know, through the country to another location and, and the cruelties that happened to them. Uh, and she just began to emotionally fall apart. She was getting counseling and she ultimately killed herself. I'm not saying that's the only reason that she killed herself, but I, in my opinion, I think it's the major reason, because you cannot find an affirmative meaning in life if people can torture each other. People will torture each other very easily, frankly, if they think they can get away with it. Uh, Like I say, everyone's an oppressor. Nobody's good. Give them a chance. You know, I mean, they'll kill. Man. So like the Hutus and the, you know, one of the most famous ones recently was what happened in Rwanda when the uh, Hutus decided to murder all the Tutsis, and in 100 days, Uh, They killed 800,000 Tutsis, largely by machete, in 100 days. I mean, humans aren't good. And the sad thing is, a lot of these people called themselves Christians to make it worse. see, But a lot of people—we know this, though—a lot of people— they call themselves Christians aren't Christians. We know that 71% of Americans self-identify as being Christian. But if you really go down, you know, so you have an awful lot of people that self-identify as being Christian that aren't. If you actually get down to people who say uh, beyond I'm a Christian to people who say the Bible is the inspired word of God and Jesus died on the cross and was really raised from the dead, you start getting to about 8%. (laughs) But see, a lot of people don't. They don't know this. They think, oh, look at all these Christians that are doing all these terrible things. Well, most of them aren't Christians. And they think they'll call themselves Christians. And by the way, I'm going to give a book recommendation on that one. And the book recommendation is, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families, a uh, subtitled story from stories from Rwanda it's Actually, the amazing thing is the amount of humor the guy was able to put in a book on a genocide is amazing in that book. Anyway, that's a uh, I, I recommend that. We wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed by our families. Now, the interesting thing about that is that was written by a Tutsi pastor to the Hutu, a leader of his denomination, and he says, you need to come and help me, and the guy didn't come and help them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there's another— uh, like I say, if you want to re, if get seriously study humankind, you're going and and genocide, you will not go. Humans are good. And by the way, I know how to make people from political liberals into p- political conservatives in a moment. I'll tell you how. Just one thing. It's about how you view humankind. If you view humankind as being basically good, I would be a political liberal. Hey, people are good. Why are you just getting in their way? If they want to have sex with their dog, what's, you know, people are good. People, you know, of course they would do good if we give them the chance. And, and 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 you know, back during the Soviet Union, the Cold War, well, we're just scaring them. If we laid down all of our nuclear weapons first, then they would just, they'd lay down theirs because we're just scaring them because they're good people. And, and people commit crimes are really good people. They were just, you know, they just got a bad start in its environment. See, all of that goes away if you start to believe that humans are not mm. good.
1: I think that's so true. And speaking of that, if you could try to answer this huge question, maybe 30 seconds to a minute. (laughs) What's keeping us, like in America, from descending into that chaos? What historically, like, why are, have we not already been like Germany or any any nation that doesn't? What what is it that keeps them, if that's our nature, from being pulled in that direction? I think we're already
2: in that right mm-hmm. now because we're aborting eight hundred and fifty. We're suctioning, mm-hmm. scraping, and scalding to death eight hundred and fifty thousand babies a year. True. Uh, I, who's keeping that legal? A majority of Americans keeps that legal. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're we're already there. I mean, we've killed more babies. than than the Germans killed Jews. Mm. I mean, we've killed more babies times 10 uh, than the Germans, uh, maybe not that much, but we've killed a lot more babies than the Germans ever killed Jews. Uh, This is just, you know, we're there already. Mm. The reason that we're not uh, killing people right now, outwardly killing adults uh, is, well, you know, now I think about in New York, they just passed this thing that if a baby is delivered after a botched abortion, that you could kill the baby. Uh, now it's outside the womb and you can kill the baby. Uh, but the reason we're not is uh, because we, we don't have the license to do it and we don't have the reason. Uh, it could start happening uh, but you have to have, you know, we have a strong police force and a strong government and, and stuff that to, to keep that from happening. If, if you begin to tag a group of people, though, and say these people are bad, let's say Christians, if the, if the society begins to go, you know, Christians really are the mm-hmm. all that's wrong with our society. They're anti-science. Uh, they're anti-love because they don't think that uh, homosexual love. Uh, they're harmful to people who think they're transgender because they're getting in their way of their, you know, sexual fulfillment, and on and on and on. I mean, uh, and if all of a sudden society went, that's it. We need to, you know, I mean, as a group, we're gonna we're gonna start incarcerating these people. Well, there you go.
1: Man, no, that's so good. I think it's so true. And and before we jump off to the next topic here, one more one more question I had. You know, a few years back, Love Wins, Rob Bell. He starts out kind of rhetorically asking, you know, yeah. would Gandhi go to hell? You know, certainly not, as the implied answer, um, or at least probably. You know, who could say that? But you know what you're saying implies i think that there are really no good human beings even a gandhi like is that what you're saying and how could we believe something like that that i mean they seem like they do so much good and i think you may know
2: my uh what i know about gandhi uh gandhi was not even remotely a good person uh remote in fact if you well google uh if you were to google gandhi and his nieces he went to bed naked uh, with his naked nieces every night As in two of them, every night he went to bed with two nieces that were naked every night. He didn't always do that. Sometimes, often, he'd be going to bed naked with other men's wives uh, or whoever he could get his hands on. And, and people to this, when I say this, speak, of, well, I didn't know that. Well, Google it. <laughs> ah, you know, this is not something, by the way, that, 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 you know, the Hindu population or the India, you know, India wants to really get out because Gandhi is revered. But Gandhi was not even remotely. I mean, he, in fact, I think he was a twisted, very twisted individual. I'm not going to get off into some of his sexual practices. It's, but anyway, no, he wasn't a good person.
1: Yeah, and I think that's good to know because he kind of is that paradigm for us in the West. Yeah, he is. It's like, like, man, the the non-Christian that really is yeah. good at heart, and if God could send him to hell, then the whole thing falls apart, basically, is the idea.
2: Yes, absolutely. We've got to get into our heads that doing a good act doesn't make you a good person. mm That's what we need to get into our heads.
1: And I like you make a distinction, too, between being nice and being good. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: If somebody lends you their lawnmower or lends you, you know, a couple of eggs or a a cup of sugar or whatever, uh, you know, volunteering in the senior center, uh, whatever, that doesn't make you a good person. That makes you a person who does some good things. The trouble is, is when people are doing this, watch this, people generally are doing that to people they like and get along with. Jesus said, if you're good to those who are good to you, what's that? Mm. Uh, he says sinners do that. Who doesn't do that? Who doesn't do good things to those that do good things to them? Everybody does that. This is what I call niceness. This is human niceness. Mm. Jesus, if you want to really do something good, love your enemy. That's, there's, there's human goodness. Love your enemy. But most of the time, that's just simply not, you know, anyway, that's just not the case. People don't do that because they're not good people. Uh, and like I say, the people that are, you know, out lending sugar or fantasizing about having sex with people they are not married to and watching porn. And and uh, uh, I just read that porn use is way up uh, because of this covid-19 thing. Not surprisingly, you know, um, and they're going, yeah, but I'm a good person because I'm not cheating, actually cheating. i my like, well, No. You're not a good person.
1: Well, yeah, as, and, and as we're kind of round and third base here, I hate to spend less of time on the good part, but let's, <laughs> let's transition to kind of like, you know, one of the things you talk about that helps us know why God allows evil. You already said some of it, you know, it's to teach us to hate sin and teach us about these things. But how does that relate to what he has planned for us in the future? And how does that give us the ability to go through that suffering now?
2: Well, knowing... All suffering, for the Christian, all suffering, God uses it for our good, all of it, every bit of it. First Corinthians, it says, this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The slight, and he calls it slight momentary affliction. Think of the significance of that, because you go, wow, I've got cancer, and I've had bone cancers, you know, but I... I, I and you go, that didn't seem slight or momentary. It mm. hurt like crazy, and it threatened my life, and it went on for, it was about a year and a half before I, I, I finally realized, they finally realized what it was and got fixed me, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but compared to eternity, eternity will dwarf, dwarfs, eternity dwarfs our suffering to insignificance. And that's the key point. It dwarfs our suffering to insignificance. And so that's the glory of it. And I think my, my point about, Sinfulness, you know, I, I, as you know, I use the analogy, I'll say, uh, how many of you would like to see me stab? I'll grab a pen and say, would you like to see me stab this pen into my eye? And people are horrified and, and, uh, going, and I'll hold the pen up close to my eye. So I could do it. I could just stab this pen into my eye right now. But, you know, I said, but you know, I'm not going to stab this into my eye. You know why I'm not going to stab it into my eye? Because I'm too smart for that. That would be a stupid thing to do. But we don't give pens to little babies, do we? Because they'd stab it right in their eye. (laughs) JP Moreland, who I always enjoy saying is always more indelicate than me, puts it this way. He says, he uses a different analogy. He says, uh, how many of us would like to go out on the lawn right now with a spoon and find a heaping pile of dog poop and chow down on it? Uh, uh, that's, that's, that's Moreland's. That's the way Moreland does it. I dare say nobody is going to, no one listening to this is going to do that now. Watch this, though. But we don't let little babies out near dog poop uh, crawling around because why? they crawl They crawl right into it. They don't know any better. This is hard for people to get their minds around, and I'm your listeners, because people go, no, but what's the real reason he's allowing all this suffering? Well, he's trying to teach us, he's educate us that sin is really and rebellion are really stupid, 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 stupid things to do. They're stupid. In fact, they're stupider uh, than jabbing a pen into your eye or or chowing down on a pile of dog poop. They're they're stupider than that. But see, when we take this knowledge then into heaven, this is eternally valuable because it'll be, we can, God can give us free will, and we still won't sin because what? We've learned here that sin is stupid. Now, as I go through the book, there's other reasons than that. We There will be no world like we have now. You won't be one click from porn in heaven. Mm. There won't be porn in heaven. Uh, you won't, the flesh that we have now this desires are you know can be pretty randy and who knows where they they don't really care how they get fulfilled that much as long you know your mind might care i'm dividing between the mind and the body but your body just wants to be fulfilled mm. uh that we won't have a body like that uh you know the devil is not going to be tempting us and his minions they're going to be in hell Hell tell will be an eternal reminder to free beings of the horror of rebellion and so on. So, you know, but it, this is all, in my opinion, this is all about being prepared for heaven.
1: And maybe, yeah, maybe as we're now really coming into home, what is heaven going to be like? What? How to, is there anything about heaven... Would maybe help us see it differently. You know, one of the thoughts we kind of have is the, you know, the the old floating in the clouds playing the harp, or just an eternal worship service. For many people, you're like, oof, I can't even stay in church now. Yeah, which is uh, says something more about us. But you know, what what is that? What is heaven, and how does that make this even more worth it?
2: Well, you know, I spend, that's why I spend the last three chapters of my book, Why Does God Allow Evil on Heaven, and I spend the last two chapters of my book, uh, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It on Heaven, Mm. Uh, because we have to have, if you're going to really be able to cope with this world, you need to have a robust view of eternal life in Jesus. And you mentioned the harps and the clouds, see, Satan has done some of his best read worst work, some of his most damaging work uh, and what he's done with heaven. And and I, in Why Does God Allow Evil? I, I go through six myths. Heaven is white. We won't know each other. All we're going to do is sing. You know, you, <laughs> every time heaven is presented, you know, we're going to be angels uh, sitting on clouds, strumming harps and singing forever, sporting flightless wings. Uh, and we're going to do that forever. That's Satan's work uh and and i like i say there's a lot to be said about this one we are going to know our loved ones Two, our occupation in heaven is reigning with christ mm. further if you're gonna if you want to look into what heaven's colors are read revelation it's not white it's jewel toned if you're going to give it a color heaven is jewel toned not white uh but i call what satan's done on this and i do think it's some of his best work made heaven look like a place you wouldn't want to go Heaven, though, in the Old and New Testament, the most common comparison of heaven, the most common analogy is a banquet. Mm. Uh, I don't know anybody that doesn't like to have a banquet. Scripture says, you know, I mean, like in Isaiah, that we will eat. Aged wine and fatted meat, uh, and those who are oh, I don't want fatted meat because it's got fat in it. And you don't have to worry about that in heaven. We're going to eat the best meat. We're going, you know, and, and so on. Heaven is most often con- compared to being a banquet, but we're not just going to be banqueting all day long. Sure, we're going to sing, but that's we're not going to sing nonstop. They get that from the seraph singing, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty," mm. and they say he never ceases to sing that. If you read the rest of Revelation, you'll find that the seraphs are often not singing that; mm. they're doing other things, <laughs> and in fact, and they're singing other songs. Yeah. But see, people, like I say, this is Satan's work. He's trying to make heaven look like a place you don't want to go. Uh, but but in short, like I say, if anything, heaven's most often compared to a banquet, and our occupation is not going to be singing or sitting on a cloud and strumming a harp. Our occupation is. Is going to be reigning with christ and i think that what that means very simply is he's going to put us in charge of uh, of of heaven uh and that's that's our future
1: wow well thank you so much dr this johnson yeah Good. informing and devotional <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah bless you in in your continued work in this area and uh so the
2: oh, book just came it. out this week um immortal how the fear of death drives us and what we can do about it oh really cool. awesome so that just came out last Tuesday, and for, fortunately, because of COVID, there's been some shipping issues. Amazon sold out in the first two days, which was good. Oh wow! But now they're only selling it through a third party because of this COVID thing. It's just a mess. But anyway, uh, yeah, that just came out, and uh, so is that on Kindle as well, or just it is on Kindle. Okay. You you can get it immediately on Kindle. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. Okay.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Pleasure to be with you both.
1: No, oh, Couple questions here, and this is going to be only for our Patreon listeners. I'm going to take a little detour. Does the um the challenge to the existence of Adam and Eve now that's going on, basically, in the church, the dispute? What would be your take on that? Is this something we need to to kind of hold on to very tightly? The second Patreon question I had, um, you know, one of the things, for instance, in the coronavirus, you know. Sometimes people will dismiss any judgment of God because we they will say, Well, we all are evil. So, how could He judge one group over the other? Or maybe help us understand biblically does God view different sins differently at times and judge differently based on those sins? Is there any reason to think He might do that in some cases and not other Or does He just blanketly say, No, I'm not even going to get involved in that because everybody's equally sinful in that sense?
0: We hope you found that interview informational and encouraging. And we actually have those bonus questions and answers on our Patreon right now. And so if you'd like to hear his answers on those questions, go to patreon.com slash freemindfm, and there's a link to that in show notes. And you can hear his answers there. A donation of any amount per month will get you access to all of our bonus episodes, the entire library. You can find the links to Clay Jones' book, Why Does God Allow Evil, in show notes. And we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode's in the podcast at freemind.fm on Instagram and Twitter podcast FM on Facebook. You can send us an email podcast at freemind.fm. And if you haven't yet, we would really appreciate if you could give us a five-star rating and review in Apple podcasts that helps this podcast gets found by people who are searching for worldview resources, apologetics, and Christianity. Thanks for tuning in. We can't wait to catch you next time.